Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. Today we conclude three-month season of Disordered Stories, where I've been talking about films that, much like Twin Peaks, have stories told out of order in some illuminating, interesting way. Although, a little teaser for the end, where I talk about what the next episode's going to be, even though we're starting a new season with a new theme, we're kind of going to have a bridge there, because that's going to be a bit of a disordered story as well. But in this season, the uh, films discussed have been Back to the Future Part 2, and in October, and The Vanishing last month, and so now we move on to Akira Kurosawa's classic. Just a brief note as to what I've been up to on my other podcast feeds in the past month, uh, since the previous episode on Twin Peaks Conversations. I actually put up two episodes since that uh, last checked in on Twin Peaks Cinema. One of them was with Vera Drew, the director of The People's Joker, a fascinating, uh, unauthorized DC Universe uh, parody film that uh, she entered into Toronto Film Festival, and there's been interesting controversy swirling around that. She's a big Twin Peaks fan, so she actually came on to talk about both her film and Twin Peaks. And then I followed that up a couple weeks later with the hosts of the Twin Peaks Evangelion podcast, had them on to discuss Neon Genesis Evangelion and Twin Peaks, two subjects that I've been fascinated with for a long time. And on a Lost in Twin Peaks podcast, I've been continuing my run through season three with parts 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. So all that's left is the finale, 17 and 18. That might go up this weekend. It very well may not because I've been under such a crunch with all these podcasts. If it doesn't, you know, it, it will go up eventually within a few weeks or something like that, but uh, just wouldn't be up right before Christmas. And then on uh, the Lost in the Movies podcast, I published an episode on Marie Antoinette wrapping up a season of classic Hollywood. This is the 1938 version of that story. And uh, finally, on the Lost in the Movies patron podcast for dollar a month patrons, I had a sprawling episode on the 2000s and uh, also on the 60s and some 90s films in there as well. I've been doing a decade approach month to month. So on this particular one, I'll just kind of read out what's on there before we uh, get into Rashomon, because uh, again, there was a lot. The two focuses were uh, Southland Tales. I had a long conversation with Andrew Cook about that fascinating Richard Kelly film uh, made around the mid-2000s. It's like an alternate version of that decade. And then also Jean-Luc Godard's Weekend, the apocalyptic late 60s film where it uh, kind of anticipated May 68 in a very avant-garde fashion. And then in addition, Andrew offered feedback and I had a brief capsule, well, not that brief, on uh, the film 300. And I also had more capsules on Bonnie and Clyde, The Graduate, Midnight Cowboy, The Swimmer, Dr. Strangelove, No Country for Old Men, There Will Be Blood, Zodiac, History of Violence, Brokeback Mountain, Eternal Sunshine, The Spotless Mind, The Darjeeling Limited, The Dark Knight, Gangs of New York, 500 Days of Summer, The Ring, Donnie Darko, The Box, Dog Day Afternoon, The Muppet Movie, The Muppet Christmas Carol, The Witches, Heat, The Blair Witch Project, Edward Scissorhands, Election, Groundhog Day, Total Recall, Dick Tracy, and then I had archive readings on an essay I wrote about my reflections on the 2000s decade, uh, right when I was still in it, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, Breathless, and much, much more. I have big, long archive episodes, public ones, uh, you can listen to since they're already were published pieces that I'm reading aloud. Uh, for the 60s and the 2000s, and also updates on feedback, media work updates. So if you've ever considered being a patron, uh, this might be the time. So again, these are mostly like short little reviews, um, not even reviews, sometimes just riffs or reflections on a particular movie that I watched, like between a minute and seven or eight minutes sometimes, and they're running a little longer. But the two big reviews are 
15 or 16 minutes on weekend and the really long, like hour long conversation on Southland Tales. So check that all out. And uh, I've got non-podcast material too, but I already discussed that in my Lost in the Movies episode. So I'll just stick to the podcasts here. And actually I should note in this case, because this is sort of unusual, I had written an essay on uh, Rashomon in 2011, which I thought did a very thorough job of covering the plot mechanics and some of the important themes. And so I decided to just read that, actually do an archive reading as part of the review. So I'm going to start with that. And then when I read that essay afterwards, then we're going to focus exclusively on the Twin Peaks connections there. And there's a lot of fascinating stuff to dig into. Here is my review of Rashomon from the archive from December 22nd, 2011. And this was part of a series I did called The Big Ones, covering 32 classic films that I had not covered before on the site. Is Rashomon a parable of relativism? Not exactly. Sorry if that sounds like a relativist statement. After all, the events, or rather the different versions of the same event, that's portrayed don't differ merely in perspective on this or that detail, but in the entire thrust of the action. Even the most anti-objectivist, open-minded, postmodern, pluralist thinkers would not claim that multiple accounts of a physical encounter, which completely contradicted one another, could all be, quote, true. When I first saw Rashomon, it quickly became my favorite Kurosawa, because of the lush visual and sonic texture, and the cleverness of the storytelling. But I was baffled by the claim that it offered some kind of a concrete critique of reality and the truth. The point seemed a bit trite. After all, a man was killed. Somebody killed him. And the different versions were all incompatible with one another. It's possible nobody is right, but it's a cinch everyone isn't. As Daniel Patrick Moynihan once said in a heated political debate, you're entitled to your own opinion, sir, but not to your own facts. What are the facts of Rashomon? Nobody disputes that a man and his wife entered the forest and were intercepted by a bandit who tied the husband up and raped the wife. The three major accounts, bandits, wives, husbands, from beyond the grave via spooky female medium, all concur on these points. What then? According to the boastful bandit, the wife begged him to kill her husband so that only one living person would know of her dishonor. According to the wife, the rapist stormed off and she was left distraught, pleading her husband's forgiveness and then asking him to kill her, while he only stares at her in cold disgust. According to the dead man, the wife deviously begged her assailant to take her with him and kill her husband. In all three versions, the bandit and the husband are tough, in some sense, quote, honorable, despite variously murdering, raping, and scorning an abused woman. It's the woman character who shifts mercurially. Indeed, even in the wife's own testimony, she accepts the logic of disgrace and humiliation, begging to die, accepting that she should, but unable to throw herself in the water. The bandit seems fairly indifferent to her character. She's an object for his lust, but not really a human being whose inner dimensions intrigue him. And of course, to the husband, she is a vicious, lusty backstabber. The two men and the woman herself are essentially arguing not over the facts of the case, but the nature of the wife and her affections. The wife said she did the best she could. The husband says she didn't. 
and the bandit could care less. He's just in it for the loot and the glory. To the extent the bandit's character is up for grabs, it's secondary to the wife. She dispenses with him immediately when her flashback begins. She's as indifferent to his inner workings as he is to hers. For both of them, the rape is the setup for the dilemma which follows. Meanwhile, the bandit makes himself out to be a charismatic villain, a sort of pirate of the land, bellowing and cackling and vanquishing his honorable opponents. It's the husband's perspective which is most curious. He essentially makes the bandit out to be a good guy, aggressive perhaps, but disgusted by the wife's suggestion to kill her husband. For the husband, the key fact is not that a bandit attacked him and assaulted his wife, but that the wife, quote, submitted. He almost seems to respect the bandit, and despite being on opposite sides of this particular situation, they appear to have a sort of understanding, a male camaraderie and adversity that perceives the treacherous woman as having betrayed. All of these characters have something at stake. For the husband, his victimhood. For the wife, her honor, or at least honor and death, if not life. And for the bandit, his vanity. And why are these values at stake? Here's where a surprise fourth account enters. The woodsman who discovers a body claims, after the trial is over, to have actually witnessed the entire event. In his version, the bandit is a sniveling, confused coward, baffled by the husband's disgust and especially the wife's defiance. These don't fit his personal narrative, a tale of plunder and skullduggery in which he forces himself upon the weak and they submit or die valiantly. The husband appears equally cowardly, while hypocritically trying to couch his cowardice in terms of betrayal, saying that he won't fight the bandit over such a woman. He wants to see himself as a victim of her treachery, but she quickly turns the tables on him, shaming him by impugning his masculinity. Importantly, she is the one who unties him, flipping his own posthumous version of events on its head. There, he was rendered helpless by circumstances beyond his control. Here, he has only himself to blame for an action and impotence. Meanwhile, the wife, the most enigmatic character in the movie up till now, reveals herself as a restless, disgusted human being, impatient with her husband, revolted by the bandit, and scornful of both their heroic claims. She shatters all the false images set up so far, the bandit's goddess riding high on a horse that might as well be a white cloud, which he wants to drag down to earth. The husband's Jezebel, forsaking duty and honor for venal passions, and even her own virtuous shamed girl, a martyred picture of womanhood. Seen here, she is as human as anyone else, almost entirely sympathetic in her disgust with the chest-pounding, self-serving mythos that the men impose upon her, themselves, and one another. Certainly the woodsman's account has the ring of reality, especially if we're predisposed to believe that people are usually less honorable, noble, or pure than they believe. But is this version any more true than the others? The entire film unfolds as a story told under the Rashomon Gate, and in the framing device, a traveler mocks the woodsman's claims to truth. There's a compelling angle to all this. The woodsman is insistent that the husband was killed by a sword, not a dagger, while the traveler accurately speculates that the woodsman himself stole the dagger. Though the theft would not be inconsistent with his story, this also raises the possibility that the woodsman killed the husband himself to prevent the discovery of his theft. In this account, the husband would still have been tied to a tree while the wife and bandit disappeared. This would give additional meaning to the woodsman's acceptance of the abandoned infant at film's end not merely as recompense for lying or theft, but for murder. I do think this points out something about the film's truth claims. You can accept one or the other, but if you entirely reject them all, it becomes a rather meaningless exercise. The power dissipated instead of reinforced. To my mind, the woodsman's account is the most convincing. He seems too simple to concoct the Byzantine, conflicted dialogue and interaction that he claims to have witnessed. Also, 
Each character's behavior perfectly offsets their own accounts. The cowardly bandit boasts of his fierceness, the humiliated husband whining of his wife's treachery, the cynical wife of her weepy confusion, in the final case probably less a matter of wishful thinking than protective self-stereotyping. All accounts are true is as easy a claim as it is impossible. Well, none of the above seems an anti-dramatic cop-out. I do not think the woodsman is necessarily 100% honest, not only in leaving out the theft of the dagger, but perhaps even in his culpability with the crime itself. However, his observations about human behavior do have the ring of truth, and I suspect at least some of what he witnessed came to pass. Ultimately, however flawed, his account can stand as the Rosetta Stone for the whole film and the characters, a notion that may upset those who want to see complete relativism, but which offers a kind of loose logic to the kaleidoscopic vision of character and motivation. At any rate, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. So that was my take on Rashomon about 10 years ago, and I watched it again uh, last night before recording this. I think I agree with a lot of those perceptions I had at the time. One thing that did strike me a little differently this time, I'm less sure that the wife at least is intended to be sort of sympathetic in that last bit. Um, She certainly comes off as the most, as the least uh, sniveling, I guess you could say. The other characters just come off much more pathetic, but uh, she also seems kind of, um, how would I put it? In no version of the story, except the one that she tells before the court, is she is her victimhood front and center. And there's a sort of a double-edged sword to that. On the one hand, it's not reducing her to just sort of having one flattened role of being a, a, a person who's entirely defined by what was done to them. On the other hand, you know, she was raped by this bandit. So that that is at the core of the story that she through absolutely no fault of her own was victimized by this other person there was a tweet about uh the rashomon and how it dealt with the subject of rape and the the treatment of the wife and everything and i i don't know where that is now i didn't link it at the time it is interesting to think about that uh, in relation to twin peaks and kind of use that as the shifting point to twin peaks because both the film and the series have this elaborate investigation of a group of people, I guess you could say, a full community in Twin Peaks' case, and a smaller group of several individuals in Rashomon, uh, including the individuals who tell the story, because obviously they're implicated as well. And they both use an act of sexual violence and transgression against a woman as sort of the the, uh, springboard for all of this other reflection. I think sometimes that aspect of it gets overlooked in both works. Like Rashomon, if you talk about Rashomon, the first thing that comes to a lot of minds is the storytelling structure. Obviously, for good reason. I mean, that was a very original approach to tell these the same story from all these different perspectives. And the word itself has become a kind of a catchphrase, the Rashomon effect that people even, I believe, in, in legal professions will use to describe that sort of confusing effect of who's telling the truth here. But, you know, that structural element can sort of supersede the raw visceral fact of this of this violence at the center uh, not only the rape of the woman but also the murder of the husband so the rape murder are sort of the setup for this other supposedly more important uh, aspect and the same thing happens i think a lot with twin peaks where uh, Cheryl Lee has a great quote about this where she says that the twin peaks is a lot of fun and there's many great characters and stories but 
when you peel it back, it's about this woman who was killed and tortured in this horrible way and wrapped in plastic. And isn't that awful? And so there is this consciousness. And I, I think in both works, it's when you pay attention to the work itself, it does foreground that element more than it's sort of giving credit for. Certainly I've talked about that plenty with Twin Peaks and especially Firewalk with me. But in Rashomon too, as I mentioned in my review, for all of the different ways you can look at how it juxtaposes character and everything, in the end, what is varying from tale to tale the most is the woman's reaction to the crime and how she responds to it, whether or not she kind of takes matters in her own hands and drives the action or is just a victim of it, whether she's, quote, good or bad, um, this whole sort of Madonna horror complex that that all of the characters, including the woman herself, it seems, has. And uh, another interesting note to kind of finish that observation on is that Fire Walk With Me, the only place it was a huge hit was in Japan, and there have been speculations, I don't know how warranted this is, but that part of the reason audiences responded so strongly to the film was um, Japanese women feeling that it reflected some some Japanese women. I don't want to be like uh, totally generalizing here, but many Japanese women feeling that it reflected their uh, uh, social role and sort of subjugation at times in this in the more traditional aspects of the society. So again, that's a big generalization, and I don't know that there's ever been a study of that. That may just be somebody speculating from the outside. I think Martha Nockhamson might have mentioned. I'm not sure exactly who it was that. Uh, put that idea forward. I think it may be in her book from one of the actors or actresses saying that they thought that was an element to it. But at any rate, that's the core of both of these stories and kind of all of the action kind of spring at the action and the experimentation, the formal experimentation springs from that thematic core. Now, the thing I want to discuss more broadly about Twin Peaks and Rashomon is that structural element of telling the same story different ways or different stories about the same event and the sort of slipperiness of the truth. But, and this is what I want to emphasize and what I what was so important to me in this review, I've always kind of had an issue with the sort of postmodern thrust and a lot of cultural analysis. It, it doesn't quite work for me. And I dealt with that, obviously, in my review of Rashomon. I've dealt with it a lot in Twin Peaks. I think both show the slipperiness of truth. They show that maybe you can't quite grasp it, but there is a truth out there that maybe you can get a, a piece of. That's my kind of uh, perspective of it. So in both the overall narrative of Rashomon and Twin Peaks, we have conventions, like narrative dramatic conventions that are followed, sort of expectations that are met about the way certain characters would act in these sort of archetypal ways. And then as the story goes along, they're denied. The more straightforward detective story kind of collapses and we see more complexity and also more reality, mundanity, if that's a word to it, as the story goes along and also more mythic elements. I mean, in both Rashomon and Twin Peaks, there is a supernatural intervention, much more so in Twin Peaks, where there's a whole mythos about it and eventually alternate realities and time travel and things like that. But even in Rashomon, you have the medium, this woman who walks around in the little court area, falls to the ground, and then she starts speaking in this possessed voice, and she is able to convey the dead uh, husband and his point of view. And that also, I would add, is another area where you could start to peel back the onion and wonder what you're getting here is 
first of all, the sort of flaws or questions in the husband's perspective, but also is the medium accurately reflecting him? I mean, this is going through another process. Is she tapping into maybe what his emotional truth was, but not what really happened or even he would claim really happened? Is she herself inventing something? I mean, that's something I haven't even dug into, but it's interesting to consider. But that's a side note. At any rate, both of these narratives get more complicated as they go along and kind of peel back the layers so that at once we are less certain of what to believe, but also I would argue feeling like we maybe are getting closer to the truth, at least by the end there. So moving through the whole narrative of Twin Peaks, it's an interesting comparison because the two works are so fundamentally different. One is a TV show split into different episodes. It was written as it went along. They didn't even know who the murderer was going to be in the beginning versus Rashomon, where the whole thing is written out beforehand. Obviously, it's conceptualized as a whole, and then they shoot it and deliver it that way. So uh, with Twin Peaks, when you start out in the pilot, it's positioning us in a world that has yet to be explained. We're meeting all of the after effects. And of course, this is a convention of all detective stories, period, where you usually start after the crime has happened, and now you're going back. So you have this piece of evidence, A, B, C, D. There's something very satisfying about that type of storytelling because I think it reflects the way we experience the world where we we find something, you know, sometimes we're experiencing the whole process beginning to end and reaching a destination. Sometimes we're coming in and trying to figure out after the fact what happened. I mean, on a fundamental sense, we're all born into a world that already exists. So there's something very baseline fundamental about being a detective and trying to work backwards and figure out from these things that look like end results that they have origin stories that stretch back before we can see. So there's something deeply fascinating about that. And that obviously goes way beyond both Rashomon and Twin Peaks. So that, in a way, is a sort of a conventional beginning to this detective story. Something less conventional is the fact that you have actors playing multiple uh, characters in Twin Peaks who have Maddie and uh, Laura, I think, primarily, but then also these characters who are possessed in some way. So there's like, what part's Leland? What's part Bob? What part is Bob? Later, Cooper becomes, uh, he gets a doppelganger. So it's like we have these different Coopers. So these, there's the all these individuals, uh, Nato and Diane and the Tulpas and everything. It, it, it More and more as the story goes along, you have this idea of identities split and fragmented into different sort of corridors. And you certainly get that in Rashomon, where you have, they're all playing one character, but they're getting to play. This is very unusual, I think, to have a movie where you're playing one character, but the character does totally, even fundamentally different things, and yet they still have to be, at root, the same character. That is fascinating to me. I mean, I've always had sort of an idea in the back of my head that I never really get to act on. I know there's sort of versions of this out there. I think Steven Soderbergh may have even done something where it's sort of a choose-your-own-adventure type story. And the interesting thing about that type of story is you have to design a character who is fundamentally that character, but who does different things. And there's sort of two ways to do that. One is they could react to things. They could have different things to react to. So they're, the, nothing about the fundamental character is changing. They're just meeting different challenges and reacting accordingly. Another way to approach it is to have them actually make different decisions, and then you're getting more deep down into what defines a person. How can they still be that person if they make choice A and they could also make choice B and both are like somehow consistent with who they are? Is that even a possibility? 
you get into questions of determinism and free will. So that's fascinating. Rashomon isn't doing that exactly because it is, again, positing that there something did happen. And what we're the consistency, in a way, is that what we're seeing may not be how they actually acted, but it has something to do with how their mind works um, that they would want to think they acted that way, even if they didn't. So all of it still stems from some sort of consistent source in a way, really fascinating to consider. Twin Peaks is more ambiguous in that sense, where sometimes we don't know. I mean, to start at one extreme, Maddie and Laura are literally different people, although you do get the sense that David Lynch wanted them to be more interconnected. And then going all the way to the other extreme, you have, I'm not even sure if you could put it in a linear fashion that way, actually. You have Leland and Bob, where you could question, is this all really one person who's invented or latched on to another entity to sort of justify themselves? You have the doppelganger and Coop, where it's like, are these branches of the same tree or are they do they just look alike and they're fundamental opposites i think there's a lot more open questions about what the nature of these blurred characters and identities are uh, in twin peaks versus probably rashomon uh, there's a great quote from a critic alexander sasonsky who uh, writes in the criterion collection um essay about rashomon uh, referring just to toshura maifuni and uh, Mashiko Kayo, sorry if I'm mispronouncing their names, but the bandit and the wife, because they were sort of the bigger actors in it. But you could definitely say this about uh, Masayuki Mori as well, who plays the husband. He says, uh, in Rashomon, these two each consummately play four roles, though only one character, who has a new personality each time a new speaker tells the tale. I would say more than four roles, because there's at least four... Oh, each of them plays four roles. Yeah, exactly. So I... <laughs> I thought that was really interesting. The Element of Fire Walk With Me makes one of the most interesting, maybe one of the most direct opportunities to compare Rashomon and Twin Peaks because Fire Walk With Me is where you peel back the onion to actually get Laura's point of view from her, more or less her own perspective after 30 episodes or, you know, 16, however many the mystery itself is, of getting other people's perspectives of her, who she was, these little bits and pieces from the outside. Rashomon... Uh, you get that more with the woodsman who's observing what we think probably really happened. When you get the wife's perspective herself, there's implications that that isn't exactly accurate. So that's actually a difference between the two works where Firewalk With Me, by getting to see Laura's perspective, there is a sense of like, no, now we're really getting to see what happened. But in both cases, you have a move from this more abstracted, distanced, mythologized version of the reality and the truth to something that rings more accurate. And there's a certain, I, I mentioned this before, a certain mundanity to it that I really find fascinating. You see this in Mulholland Drive too as well, where you have this mythological Hollywood and then in the last part of the film, you get something more down to earth and almost familiar in a way in some of the tropes and the ideas of the, oh, this happens every day. You see in reverse how that was sort of transposed to this heightened dream in a way that's really resonant. This idea of how we make these myths out of our own commonplace lives because the emotions of those commonplace lives really are to us as overpowering and profound as something in mythology. So there's a, there's a real... Uh, fascination with that and in Rashomon and uh, I would in this point almost shift to season three to compare this with uh, particularly the end of season three where uh, the Richard version of Cooper goes back and finds Carrie Page this supposed other version of Laura and she's lives in much more humble surroundings she's not uh, this heightened goddess figure just this waitress in middle of some kind of trouble wanting to get out of town 
And so there's this disconnect between the sort of the expectation of Lara, who's been built up so much in this third season now as like she's literally almost like a goddess, like they're sending a bubble down to Earth. And then here we get Carrie Page, two total extreme opposites there. In both Rashomon and uh, part 18 of Twin Peaks, really through all of season three, but it's particularly noticeable here, you get less music. Rashomon has passages where it's just like overpowering music, thrumming, humming all the time as the characters are speaking, as they're doing things. And then in the end, when we see the woodsman's perspective, it's totally stripped of music. And so earlier we get this great dramatic clash of sword fights with lots of editing, the sword swishing, going in closer and closer, the close-ups, lots of close-ups between them. When they show the sword fight in the woodsman's version of events, it's so clumsy and awkward and the characters are terrified of getting stabbed and they're stumbling all over the place. And it goes on and on, the camera following them and no music whatsoever. I love that. And I think that's something that gives you that feeling of, oh, now we're getting the reality. And there's a sense of that too in the end of part 18 where they're like, oh, now we're in Twin Peaks. We don't see the Twin Peaks sign with the boom, you know, the thumb, the Angelo Badalamenti music soaring. They just kind of ride over a bridge at night like anybody who's driven long road trips at night knows and they go past the diner with the lights out no music nothing quiet go to the door talk to the woman all of that so again you have that sense that i think lynch is really good at of really romanticizing and mythologizing things and then pairing it back and kurosawa clearly does that as well that's the more overarching interesting kind of deep profound connections i wanted to make but there's a lot of little things too that as always i like to point out when i'm making a twin Peaks cinema comparison so we'll end with these first of all the fact a that it's a woodsman who's going into the woods we get this long montage of him whistling i, I don't know if he's really whistling but he's marching off into the woods the sun filtering through the leaves beautiful sequence one of the great really one of the great sequences in cinema i think and uh, so here you have this woodsman at the center of the story and of course twin peaks has the woodsman as the mythological figures it has the woodsman who was the log lady or yes it's sort of ambiguous whether it was a firefighter or a woodsman depending which source material you read but you know a woodsman who was taken by the woods by a fire in the woods and all of that so you have that kind of fairy tale element to it and just the fact that you're going into the woods for this encounter obviously very twin peaksy and going deep into the heart of the woods for this sort of existential confrontation between these forces and uh, you have the woodsman at least in his initial version of the events discovering the body there poking around looking just the sort of simple guy going off for his day running into this shocking corpse and and initiating the whole events and of course that's like pete martell at the beginning of twin peaks discovering laura wrapped in plastic on the beach the woman is riding a white horse whether this is indicative of the death that's to come riding the pale horse or it's a symbol of some kind of purity that's being mythologized here that is going to be violated somehow and both interpretations by the way could apply to the white horse that you see uh, in Twin Peaks, you hear it neighing after the little girl is corrupted by the frog bug. And uh, it's used, obviously, in the living room before Maddie is murdered and before, um, you know, Laura is is violated. So so that's an interesting element there that has that dual function, I think. Toshiro Maifuni, who is so good in this movie. I mean, he's just, he's one of those actors that's so incredible to watch because he is fearless in, like, he's not worried about seeming over the top. He just, his whole body goes into it. And he makes expressions in this film that remind me a lot of Ray Wise as Leland, particularly when he's in his, like, Leland Bob mode in episode 16 or Parts of Firewalk with me. There's a face Leland makes 
in Firewalk With Me when he's looking out the window that people have actually compared to sort of a Japanese theatrical kind of grimace in particular. And there's other elements that are particular to Japanese culture that you get in this film that are reflected in Twin Peaks. In fact, the white faces that you see in Firewalk With Me, but they begin on the show with Wyndham Earl. That actually came directly, not so much from Kurosawa, but uh, the director of that episode, Tim Hunter, mentions Mizuguchi and uh, Ozu as uh, using these sort of white faces, uh, I think in um, Yugetsu particularly, to signify like a ghost, this white face. And you see that with the medium in particular, makeup as face mask to signify the spirit world. And uh, and certainly see that in Twin Peaks with Leland and Laura in Firewalk With Me as well. Also, the, uh, the way the medium speaks with this growling voice coming out from her you know, unexpectedly from her presence. In the last episode of uh, season two, Sarah Palmer has that exact same phenomenon happen where she comes to the diner and she's speaking and we think it may be Wyndham or the man from another place speaking through her and she's like, I'm in the Black Lodge. And that element, I think, led directly to season three having the presence of something inside of her, whether it be Judy, the jumping man, whatever you want to uh, interpret that as also most ridiculous connection is the character that Catherine the Japanese character that she impersonates in Twin Peaks is named Tojomora and uh, Toshiro Maifuni's character's name in this film is Tajomora I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it it's spelled a little differently the uh it's like an a instead of an o so it could just be coincidence but um who knows? So that that was kind of an odd little connection there. And uh, finally, just to end with, I think both films have this kind of anticlimactic, both works have this kind of anticlimactic confrontation at the end as it currently exists for Twin Peaks, where with Rashomon, you have the big sword fight where the characters are like running away from each other and everyone, the wife flees and every everybody's just sort of dispersed without any sense of resolution about, quote, who was you know, right or wrong from these characters' perspectives. Again, they're looking at the, their whole conception of the violation of the wife is almost brushed off as like, oh, well, uh, did she submit? It's like they're obsessed with that question instead of just being like, well, she was attacked. That's all that matters there. So from these characters' perspectives, nothing is resolved. And uh, then in Rashomon, there is an infant crying in the rain. I only really touched on this briefly in the review. And the woodsman character, who it turns out did steal something from the scene and was lying himself. He takes the baby and wants to take it home. He already has six kids, but another won't hurt. And so he goes off with the baby in his arms as sort of a happy-ish ending of starting again with the innocence. The only image I think that is kind of like that in Twin Peaks is the angel at the end of Fire Walk With Me, where Laura gets a sense of her own lost innocence kind of restored to her in... uh, with the wisdom that she's earned as well along the way. So those are sort of the two comparable endings there. But the way Twin Peaks currently ends with episode 18 is with that kind of anticlimactic confrontation. I mean, I suppose you could say the climax is her screaming and the lights going out in the house. And there's been all kinds of interpretations of that. But from a dramatic perspective, you watch that, you get a sense of everything fell kind of flat. Then there's this moment of some sort of realization. And that's it. We're just left with that. Uh, Laura whispering in the ear and not letting us hear what she's saying. And so to return to that, for all of the talk I've done about saying, be careful about saying there is no truth, there is a truth, but we're not necessarily ever going to be fully privy to it. And that's that whispering that Lynch loves so much, the not telling us everything and leaving us wondering. That's a signature of him as much as anything. And that 
cinematically, I think so much of that Rashomon is both a forerunner to that and an influence in many ways on that because this was a work that took that idea and really broadcast it to the world in a way that people had maybe seen somewhat before, but never in this sort of clear focused way to the point where its title became the meaning of that for many, the Rashomon effect. That's it for this episode. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also support this work on patreon.com slash lostinthemovies. Please let me know if you have any feedback on any of the subjects we've covered. Love to hear from people and share some thoughts there. And uh, to take us out now, the next uh, season is going to be an exciting one, I'm sure, to many Twin Peaks fans. We're actually going to talk about the Lynchverse. So actually, the film's that uh, David Lynch made outside of Twin Peaks that have some interesting Twin Peaks connections. I think they all do to one extent or another, obviously. We're going to focus on three in this season, and uh, one of them actually, or one of the ones you would think would be in the season isn't, but stay tuned because that's going to come up in a semi-related little season that follows, so sneak peek there. Here's a film that I don't think I need to introduce to most of you. You'll recognize it when you hear it. It, too, is very much a disordered story. What is it, Rita? What is it? What do you see? Mulholland Drive. Mulholland Drive? That's where I was going.